Good afternoon. So good to see many of you today. If you have your Bibles, please get ready to turn to Jude. A few years ago, my daughter Katie and I walked into a coffee shop we frequent near our home. While I was browsing through the menu to select a choice, natural process, single origin pour over coffee with the right balance of fruity and earthy notes at a reasonable price, of course, I looked over at Katie and I saw that Katie had covered her shirt with rainbow stickers that the coffee shop was giving away for free in support of Pride Month. You see, our family had just read the story of Noah in our daily Bible reading plan again. And we read how God had set a rainbow in the clouds as a promise that he would never destroy the earth again by a flood. So Katie, like any six-year-old girl at the time who loves rainbows and stickers, said, this coffee shop loves Jesus. In the car followed a good but hard conversation about culture and Christianity. A conversation perhaps Katie and I were probably not especially looking forward to have or ready to have, but one that was necessary. How do you fight for faith when the world around you believes the entirely opposite thing? How do you contend for truth when sometimes your own faith feels weak at best? When everyone around us seems faithless, how do you remain faithful? For these two weeks, we'll be examining the book of Jude together in our series, The Fight of the Faithful. Jude is well known for its famous exhortation in verse 3, contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Jude instructs Christians to fight for faith because false confessors and teachers have infiltrated the church, causing much division and discouragement amongst the believers. And Jude felt it necessary to appeal to the believers to contend for faith. Regardless, despite its necessary and relevant charge for then and for today, the book of Jude has been one that's easy to miss. After all, Jude is known by biblical scholars as the most neglected book in the New Testament. And there are a few reasons why this may be the case. First, because of its brevity. It's only 25 verses. Not the shortest. Obadiah and 3 John are in the running for that. Also, because of its strangeness, as you have read, perhaps, in your preparation for today's message, uh, you notice that it quotes extra-canonical works or ancient writings that's not officially within the 66 books of the Old and the New Testament, such as First Enoch or the Testament of Moses. Jude also forces us to exercise some major Old Testament review. Sodom and Gomorrah, blaspheming glorious angels, Cain, Balaam's error, and Korah's rebellion. The book is action-packed with angels and demons and sex and rebellion. Consequently, you can see why Jude is commonly neglected because of its severity. Jude contains some of the most fiercest and searing judgments against false teachers in all of the New Testament. Hence, such message of judgment strikes many in our day, even Christians, as contrary to the message of love and grace proclaimed elsewhere in the New Testament. Nevertheless, as Dr. Tom Schreiner in his commentary says, this short letter should not be ignored. Because actually, some of the most beautiful statements about God's sustaining grace are found right here in Jude. Furthermore, theologian Sinclair Ferguson says Jude far outweighs its size in the intensity 
of its teaching and the greatness of its significance. And I must agree, from my study, Jude really packs a punch. It's a book that gives great encouragement for any Christians who may be disheartened in the fight of faith. And the message of Jude is a glorious reminder that God is faithful to keep us and to keep his word to the end. Amen? So what is this power-packing epistle trying to teach us? This afternoon from Jude verses 1 through 16, I want to share with you three ways Jude exhorts Christians to contend for the faith. Three ways Jude exhorts Christians to contend for the faith. If you want to fight to win, you have to play both defense and offense. And in our text this morning, Jude is instructing us how to contend for the faith by playing good defense how to protect the gospel, how to guard against false teaching and false professors of faith. So here's the outline so you know where we're headed. Point number one, remember who you are. Verses one and two. Point number two, remember your purpose. Verses three and four. Point number three, remember who you're not. Verses five through 16. Remember who you are. Remember your purpose. Remember who you're not. And I may throw in a bonus point at the end, but we'll keep that a surprise. I pray that as we meditate on this most beautiful epistle, that you would be blessed to know what confidence, assurance, and hope we have in our loving and promise-keeping faithful God. Guests and visitors, welcome. Thank you so much for joining us for our weekly Sunday gathering. If you are here and you do not know yourself as a Christian, we especially welcome you. As Eric said, we have been praying for you, praying that God would lead you here this afternoon. We know that God has a word for you. We pray that he would grant you ears to hear his word, the word of his truth, forgiveness, and salvation through Jesus Christ our Lord today. So without further ado, let's turn to his word found on page 1027 of the Blue Bibles around you. And as you turn there, I want to encourage you to please keep your Bibles open for the entire duration when I read and preach so that you know that this is God's word for you, to build you up in knowledge of him and to grow you in faith. Jude, verses 1 through 16, says this. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation. Ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality to deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt afterward, destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desires, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Yet in like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. 
But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Woe to them, for they walk in the way of Cain, and abandon themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error, and perished in Korah's rebellion. These are hidden reefs at your love feast, as a feast with you without fear, shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn twice dead uprooted, wild waves of the sea casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against them. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires, they are loud mouth boasters showing favoritism to gain advantage. How does Jude instruct us to contend for the faith? Point number one, remember who you are. Remember who you are. Look at verses one through two again. It says this, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ, a brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy and peace and love be multiplied to you. Verse 1 tells us that the author of this letter is Jude. Now, who is Jude? Jude or Judas or Judah was a common name in those days. Five men in the New Testament bore this name. Two of those men named Jude or Judas or Judah were among Jesus' twelve. Judas, the son of James, and the infamous Judas Iscariot, the betrayer, as according to Luke 6.16. This Jude, however, was neither of those apostles. Obviously, he is not Judas, the son of James, and he is also not Judas Iscariot, the betrayer, because we know that Judas hung himself in Matthew 27.5. This author is virtually unknown to us in the New Testament. However, the question of the author's identity is quite clear from Scripture. We know which Jude is writing to us because there is sufficient evidence from the last phrase in verse 1, which says, Jude, the brother of James. Of course, James needed no other introduction, for he was a man well-known during that time. He was a prominent leader in the church of Jerusalem, according to Acts 12. The Apostle Paul identified James as one of the pillars of the church in Galatians 2.9. James was the author of the book of James, and we know that James was the brother of the Lord Jesus Christ. You remember that Jesus had four half-brothers, half-brothers, since Jesus was born of Mary when she was a virgin, James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas, as according to Matthew 13, 55. We know from the Gospel of John, chapter 7, verse 5, that Judas, along with the rest of Jesus' family, didn't believe that Jesus was the Christ during his earthly ministry. In fact, they thought Jesus was completely out of his mind, according to Mark 3, 21. It wasn't after Jesus' death on the cross and after his resurrection that the brothers were converted to faith. 
1 Corinthians 9 verse 5 even records that the brothers and even their wives gave themselves to missionary journeys after they were converted to advance the gospel. So think about this. Is it odd to you that Judas, who must have had such difficulties having the same name as Judas Iscariot, the greatest traitor of all time, Judas, who was perhaps overshadowed by the apostle Judas, the son of James, Judas was perhaps overlooked by his prominent older brother and church leader James. Judas was perhaps neglected as the fourth and baby half-brother of Jesus. In this critical occasion, in this necessary moment with only 25 short verses, divinely inspired composition, Judas could have presented the credible credential, I am Judas, the brother of James, but rather instead, Jude identifies himself in verse 1 as a servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James. He puts forth as his authority for writing this letter a slave of Jesus and a brother of James, not Jesus. Why? How come? Commentators say in their scholarly speculation that Judas was simply modest and humble, and I think they are right. But if I can dare to give an additional observation with my best exegetically informed assumption, just as Jude is very intentional with every word he wrote in this short and spicy letter, I think Jude was very deliberate in why he merely claimed himself as a slave of Jesus. I think Jude understood that most important relationship he can have with Jesus is to know Jesus as the master and Lord of his life. Brothers and sisters, isn't that so true also of us? You see, Jude had known Jesus for all of his life in a familial relationship. He had seen Jesus at his best, had seen Jesus even at his worst, if that's possible. But you know what I mean. When Jesus was crying, peeing, pooping, farting, drooling, perhaps as a baby, Judas has seen all of that. He's seen Jesus laugh and play and grow up to be this amazing, perfect man, teaching with authority, performing miracles, casting out demons, healing the sick, being an awesome son and an older brother. Except for this, though. You? A son of God? Are you crazy? Because Jude was dead in sin, dead to spiritual things, wretched in the flesh, because he was not yet born again by the gospel of Jesus' death and resurrection. Jude and his brother thought their older brother was mentally ill, according to Mark 3.21. This is why in this one letter to the church, a letter that would eventually be forever etched in history as God's inspired word, he exhorts Christians in order to contend for the faith, in order to confront false teaching. He reminds them first, remember, remember who you are in Christ. That's why in verse 2, Jude first reminds his audience with a holistic description of who a Christian is to those who are called, to those who are beloved in God the Father, to those who are kept for or by Jesus Christ. This is who you are. This is who I am. Slaves of Christ, called by Christ, beloved in God, kept by Christ. Amen? You'll notice in Jude's writing, he loves to give examples in threes. Later, you'll see that perhaps the reason for Jude's use of triplets is to point to the complete salvific work of our Trinitarian God. You'll see that in his Trinitarian prayer in verses 20 through 21 and in his Trinitarian benediction in verses 24 and 25, but we'll talk more on that next week. What does Jude mean when he addresses the called? 
Jude is reminding Christians that salvation is wholly the work of God. Called here means the effectual or the effective calling of God. So when God calls a person, it's not merely an invitation for us to accept or decline like we often do with paperless posts or evites or friend requests on social media. Those who are called by God are powerfully and inevitably brought to faith in Jesus Christ through the hearing and receiving of the gospel, which is the power unto salvation. The call of God is extended only to the elect of God, the chosen of God. Write these verses down and memorize them. 2 Timothy 1.9, Jeremiah 1.5, Galatians 1.15, Romans 9.30-32, Ephesians 1.11-14, John 6.44, John 15, 16, and 17, Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. If you miss any of those verses, just catch it on the recording. But I am certain you reflect on these verses and memorize them. It will bless you and encourage you and remind you that you are called, beloved, and kept. Scripture teaches the call is eventually and always successful, 100%. It is irresistible. That's why we will praise God in heaven for all eternity because all whom God has chosen to save will make it there. Hallelujah. He is mighty to save. Just like I chose my wife and said no to a thousand other women. You, Jerry Choi, and only you. God's love for us is even more direct. He doesn't randomly call us out for some of us to casually holla back to Him. The Bible says, those whom He foreknew, He also predestined. Those whom He predestined, He also called. Those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. He causes us to call on His beautiful name. And as Romans 10.13 says, Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. All who are called by God becomes His own to His great glory. Why does Jude recall this reality? as Jude is getting ready to unleash some serious warnings to his readers to contend for the faith by exposing false teaching, some may misunderstand that the focus of our fight is on us, on our human effort and endurance. But Jude is reminding us that the calling of God is by grace and by no merit of our own. Do you see how Jude emphasizes those who are called by God are loved by God the Father and kept by Jesus Christ? Jude is reminding us, salvation is God's work from start to finish. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ. Philippians 1.6 He supernaturally calls us as His own. He sustains us in His overflowing, never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love in God the Father. And He keeps us by grace upon grace and with new mercies every morning for us in Jesus Christ. Dear brother and sister Christian, what do those words mean to you? That you are called, that you are beloved and kept in Jesus Christ? In the midst of confusion, in the midst of self-doubt, in the midst of anxiety and overly demanding work, in the midst of insecurities and discouragements and divisions that this life brings, do you remember the Heavenly Father's calling on you? 
Do you recall the gospel you heard and believe the good news of Jesus Christ? The best news you will ever hear. That God, who is holy, unlike any other, created all things in love. The love of the Father, Son, and the Spirit for His glory and our good. But man, as you know, having been tempted by Satan, chose to be a God unto ourselves, deliberately disobeying God's word, choosing death over life. That was our choice. As a result, man was separated from God, entirely helpless to save ourselves from the vain and dissatisfying power and curse of sin. Because of our continuous rebellion in sin, we rightly deserve his wrath and judgment as the consequential sentence of our sins. But God, in his mercy, had a plan from the very beginning, didn't he? To call a people, to sustain a people, to keep a people for us to know his great redeeming love. And what was his plan? To send his only son, Jesus Christ, who is truly God and truly man, to live the life that we could not live, to die the death that we should have died. He took our place as a substitute on the cross for our sins, sins of the past, present, and future, for all of our unrighteousness, for all of our iniquities, for all of our shame, for all of our mistakes, for all of our lack. He paid the debt that we would have paid in eternal hell. And he died there on that cross. But that's not the end of the story, is it? That's the reason why we're talking about it today, 2,000 years later. Jesus Christ rose again from death on the third day, which meant that God accepted his sacrifice once and for all, conquering sin, Satan, and death forever. And whosoever would repent and believe in him will not die and go to hell, but participate in his resurrection. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So in him we get to live the abundant life here on earth right now and await with hope for his return to live a glorious eternal life with him forever. Amen? Is this the good news of Jesus you believe? Awfully quiet. Can I get an amen, somebody? Come on. At his invitation, brothers and sisters, by his effectual call, by no merit of our own, we get to call on him Father. We get to call on him Abba. And he keeps us in his love through the Lord Jesus Christ on to the end. Jude says, this is who you are. Hallelujah. If you're not a Christian here this afternoon, we're so happy that you are here. We're so happy. We've been praying for you. We pray every week that you would come, that the Lord would draw you here to our gathering. But if I may ask you a question, if you're not a Christian, what keeps you? What holds you up? What sustains you when all of life's circumstances disappoint you and discourage you and deflates you and drag you down? Can any person... Can your spouse, can your children, can any job, can anything in this world keep you to the end, love you to the end? Only Jesus. Jesus did, Jesus does, and Jesus will. Look around at over 100 people here gathered today in this room who testify of this reality. Jesus did, and Jesus does, and Jesus will. We are praying for you right now. Repent of your sins today. That means to turn from trusting in the things of this world or from your works. Confess of your need of him this moment. Trust in Jesus as your Lord and Savior this afternoon. If you'd like to talk more about how you can follow Jesus, talk to any of the pastors at the close of service or talk to anyone smiling next to you. They'll be happy to talk to you and share with you how wonderful it is to follow Jesus with this local church body. Dear brothers and sisters in Christ, may mercy and peace and love be multiplied to you in your weaknesses, in your struggles, in your waiting, in your conflicts, in your hoping. Jude prays for you and me 
that in order to contend for the faith, remember who you are. Remember whose you are. Remember what you have. An infinite, an infinite, an infinite supply of mercy and peace and love in Jesus Christ multiplied to you. That's point number one. Point number two, how do you contend for the faith? Point number two, remember your purpose. Remember your purpose from verses three. And look with me to those verses again. It says this, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation. Ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. Here in verses 3 and 4, Jude gives us the purpose of why he writes this letter, doesn't he? He says, I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, but I found it necessary to write to you about something more urgent. You see, Jude wanted to write to us about the glorious gospel. He wanted to keep going with verses 1 and 2. I mean, the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness toward us in Jesus Christ is endless, isn't it? Isn't that why we can hear the same gospel over and over again, week after week, and still be encouraged and still be built up? In fact, this is what Christians have been excited about for the past 2,000 years, the common salvation in Christ Jesus' finished work on the cross. It's what unites us to true Christians from generations past, present, and future. But here... In this specific situation, here in this dire moment, Jude found it necessary. Jude was unable to ignore. Jude had no choice but to. Jude was compelled. Jude was obligated to address a matter so threatening and so imminent an appeal to the believers to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Brothers and sisters, I wonder if you have ever felt this necessity. As our society and culture becomes more and more secularized and worldviews entirely contradictory to Scripture, which are hostile toward Christian convictions, are becoming more normalized, news of churches all around us compromising the gospel, adding to the gospel, rejecting the authority and sufficiency of the Scriptures, undermining first-tier doctrines while majoring in tertiary doctrines, have led so many churches into the slippery slope of theological liberalism, which is heresy, isn't it? They are preaching false gospels all around us. And even news of Bible-believing churches in decline, news of once faithful biblical churches selling off their buildings to commercial real estate, where that church building will never probably be a church again in this county, is deeply alarming. And if we're honest, honestly upsetting and hard to bear, as a newer church, the fact that it's so difficult to find a church to rent, to meet on Sunday, because so many so-called Christian churches make gods of worldly ideologies contrary to Scripture are pressingly concerning. What do we do? Where do we go from here? Sometimes in our lives, brothers and sisters, circumstances require a necessity. Just as it was necessary for me and my wife to no longer avoid or ignore a tough conversation about this generation's sexual liberties with our daughter who was six years old, we can't no longer go on as we were going. We can't any longer pretend as if everything is all right 
We can't any longer ignore what is going on. We as a church can't just pretend we are strolling through happy times and spiritual stupor and complacent about prayer, about the one true gospel of Jesus Christ, brothers and sisters. Circumstances all around us, surrounding us in this very moment in time is calling us to cry out to God in prayer and fasting and supplication for Him to lead and to move and to provide and for us to know, love, and proclaim the gospel ever more clearly and boldly and faithfully. Amen? The necessary appeal, the purpose for Jude's change of plans is just as urgent today as it was in those days. Contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Contend for the faith that needs no embellishment. Contend for the faith that we are justified through faith alone, by grace alone, in Christ alone. Contend for the doctrines of theology, of orthodoxy, tradition that has been passed down for generations. Contend for sound theology. Contend for biblical ecclesiology. Contend for genuine conversions. You must be born again, John 3, 7. For regenerate church membership and discipline, according to Matthew 16, 18 and 19. Matthew 18, 15 through 20. Matthew 28, 19 through 20. 1 Corinthians 5, 4 and 5. Hebrews 10, 23 through 25. And Hebrews 13, 17. Contend for inerrancy and sufficiency of Scripture as according to 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. Revelation 22, 18 and 19. Contend for biblical complementarianism as according to 1 Timothy 2, 12. Contend for biblical marriage as according to Genesis 2.24, Matthew 19.4 and 5. Not because this is our preference. Not because we hold to some weird opinions. But because we are convinced this is biblical. This is a matter of contending for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. We don't get to pick and choose what this faith is. The gospel we know and declare proves and evidences, shows us who we are. That's the message of Jude. As Paul says in Galatians 1, 6 through 10, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one. Even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Am I trying to please man? If I were to trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Many of you know earlier this year I heard word from the doctors that my prostate levels were extremely high and that it may have been cancerous. Given that my father and his father died of cancer, I'm not going to lie, the diagnosis was pretty shocking. But by God's grace, by God's grace, thank you for your prayers, my levels are down enormously to normal levels as I'm still getting monitored every couple months. But you know what it reminded me of? that I am guaranteed nothing in this life. Health and prosperity is not owed to me by God here on earth just because I'm a Christian. The sufferings of this life is meant to sanctify me and grow my trust and desire for Christ and heaven. Does that make God less faithful when I go through trials and suffering? Does that make God less good? Of course not. It actually challenges me to cling to Him, to cry out to Him more, because He alone is the good and sovereign Lord. Nothing else on this earth compares to Him. His ways are higher than my ways. His thoughts are higher than my thoughts. Amen? 
Tomorrow is not guaranteed, brothers and sisters. On my own merits, I am guaranteed nothing. But here's what I know. Whether I live for the next 50 years or the next 50 days, whether I live in prosperity or poverty, whether I struggle in suffering or sorrows, I know who I am in Christ. I am called. I am loved. I am kept by Christ. I know what my purpose is. And with Paul and along with the saints of old, I am confident of this that he who began a good work in me will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. The necessity to contend for the faith. Contend means to agonize. It means to toil and labor hard. Don't you, with me, want to agonize for the gospel because it's worth it, because it's true? We want to agonize together, not grow weary of doing good with this church body, don't you? Brothers and sisters, do you understand and believe that you too are called and loved and kept by Christ? Do you know what your purpose in this life is? Do you know what your purpose for this church is? What is the Lord necessitating you this afternoon towards? This afternoon's exhortation from Jude is to wake up from complacency, from comfort to urgency to necessity. This word is to call you from being a spectator in the church to be an owner of this church. We, you and I, covenanted together, make up this church. We are the church. Amen? We see why it was necessary that we contend for the faith, that we remember our purpose. There in verse 4. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people, who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. It says certain people have crept in unnoticed. Other translations say these people have come in by stealth. And these people pervert the grace of God into sensuality. Wow. Isn't this so prophetic and relevant to our day? The fact is these people have not disappeared since Jude's day at all. They're still around today in our churches. They never left. In fact, I would say that things have gotten worse. Look at the churches in our county. Look at our denominations. Look at evangelicalism. And we are to guard and protect the gospel from these people. In order to do that, we have to discern the who and the what of what these false teachers and false teachings are. Now, again, this is so countercultural to our society, isn't it? We, we may think this is judgmental of us. It's uncharacteristic of Christians. It's unloving to judge other people. Well, Jude seems to be very clear in letting his audience know the difference between who we are and who they are, between what a true Christian is and what is not. Jude clearly draws the boundaries between who will be kept by Christ for salvation and who will be kept in eternal chains. For that, let's turn to our final point in answering how to contend for the faith. Point number three, remember who you're not. Remember who you're not from verses 5 through 16. You'll notice the phrase in verse 5, now I want to remind you. It marks a new section in verses 5 through 16. Next week you'll see a similar phrase in verse 17, but you must remember verse 17, which marks another section. The reason why is because you'll notice something very interesting in Jude's instruction for us in our contending. You see, when Jude says, contend for the faith, instead of going head to head with these false teachers and false confessors, Jude's instruction for us is to remember. 
Contending is remembering. Look at that phrase at the end of verse 4 again. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation. These people have crept in unnoticed. But guess what? It says they were long ago designated for this condemnation. They try all they can to cause strife in the church. They try all they want to stir up that drama. But what is their end? Jude is saying, just as God's elect will be kept by Jesus to glory, God's enemies will be kept by Jesus for judgment. In addition to verse 4, look at verse 6. Those he has kept in eternal chains until the judgment of the great day. Verse 13, these whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. Jude is telling us in order to contend for the faith, not only remember who you are, not only remember what your purpose is, remember who you are not. Jude understood that when the rubber meets the road, there are times the sheep needs to be defended before they are fed. So he's bringing up these reminders so that we would be able to do just that. Just notice how Jude goes to lengths to make sure we know who they are so that we can have discernment to know who the wolves are. Look at verse 4. Certain people. Verse 8. These people. Verse 10. These people. Verse 12, these people. Verse 16, these people. Verse 19, these people. So for this final point, I have three brief subpoints. First subpoint, who they were, verses 5 through 7. In these verses, Jude gives us three historical Old Testament examples of God's judgment in the past. Number one, of apostates, those who renounced their faith in God in the wilderness coming out of Egypt in reference to Numbers 14. Exodus 32, also referenced by Paul in 1 Corinthians 10, verses 6 through 13. He also talks about the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority in reference to Genesis 6, 1 through 4. We read that in community group and were reminded of some weird things that happened in the Old Testament. When angels did not keep to their proper spear, but came down to have intercourse with daughters of men. Number three, of Sodom and Gomorrah in reference to Genesis 19 where the sin of homosexuality, the sin of men wanting to have intercourse with angels, the sin of pride and disregard for the poor, according to Ezekiel 16.49, and their arrogance and injustice and bigotry served as an example, undergoing, ultimately, punishment by eternal fire. Well, what is the purpose of why Jude wants to remind us of those Old Testament examples? History is showing us the wicked will not get away. They were destroyed. They are kept in chains. They were judged. Remember what they did. Remember who they were. Is it strange to you that in verse 5, Jesus makes an appearance in the Old Testament? That Jesus is referred to as the one who saved the people out of Egypt and also the one who destroyed those who did not believe? Well, it was not uncommon. Even in those days when Jude was written about A.D. 67 to A.D. 80, for the apostles and all who held to the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints to understand Jesus as the second member of the Trinity, the Son of God, who was present with God from the very beginning, according to John 1.1. The apostle Paul acknowledges Christ was present with Israel in the wilderness in 1 Corinthians 10.4 and 9. Moreover, the apostle John says that Isaiah saw the glory of Jesus Christ in John 12.41, referring to Isaiah 6. There's more verses I can reference regarding Jesus' presence through the Old and the New Testament, but the point is this. For anyone who's just thinking Jesus is a nice guy who, who never offends anybody, 
Yes, in fact, indeed, He is the most loving God. But love is not merely soft and mushy feelings. Love is protecting. Love is fighting on our behalf. And Jude clarifies in verse 5, Jesus is not only our Savior, but He is also the judge of the world. John 5, 22 says, For not even the Father judges anyone, but He has given all judgment to the Son. John 5, 27 says, And He gave Him authority to execute judgment because He is the Son of Man. Brothers and sisters, Jesus keeps a people for glory. Jesus keeps a people in eternal chains for judgment. Jesus rightly, justly destroys evil. It's heavy stuff. Stay with me, it gets better. Second sub point two, what they are. From verses 8 through 13. Jude wants us to see false teachers and false confessors for what they really are. They were ones who rejected God's authority, ultimately. You see there in verse 8, they relying on their dreams. Their source of authority wasn't God's word. It was mysticism. It was astrology. It was spiritism. It was dreamology and not theology. They used those things instead of God's word to justify their sins. It also says they defiled the flesh. They committed sexual sins, sex outside of marriage. They practiced unnatural, unbiblical sex. They used God's name in vain to justify their sexual sins. God made me this way. They perverted the grace of God. They rejected authority. They went to church, uh, but they did not submit themselves under the word. They did not covenant together with other believers in church membership. They did not submit to their pastors as according to Hebrews 13 and 17. And lastly, it says in that verse, they blaspheme the glorious ones. Well, what kind of sin is that? Even commentator says there's not too much we can know as to what this exactly means, but verse 9 gives us some help. Quoting from extra-canonical work, the Testament of Moses, or the Assumption of Moses, a well-known work of the time, Jude recounts a contrasting picture of how Archangel Michael reacted completely opposite to the false teachers who abused authority, who thought there were something when they were actually not. Now, why Jude quotes from this work is a conversation for another time. But what is important is Jude uses this reference to indict the very pride of his opponents using it. Take a look again at verse 9. But when the archangel Michael contending with the devil was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. The archangel Michael, who in his own right had the authority to rebuke the devil, rightly understands that it is God alone who has the ultimate authority for condemning judgment. You see, verses 11 through 13 further describes false teachers and false confessors' sins. These were wicked and greedy and divisive people. So look at verses 11 through 13. Woe to them, for they walk in the way of Cain and abandon themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. Jude provides another three Old Testament types the false teachers fit that of Cain, Balaam, and Korah. Cain was an example of a person who chose wickedness over good, a type of person of sin and envy for murdering his brother Abel. Balaam was an example of a person who poured themselves out for the sake of money. Prophets who spoke, who taught to make a profit. Balaam's error was proposing moral entrapment for money. Hey, are you going to invite me to that big conference this year? Make sure you do that because you owe me some money, don't you? i got to make that money. That's what Balaam's error was. And finally, Korah. Jude is referring to Korah who led a rebellion in number 16, who wanted to usurp Moses and Aaron's authority. And as a result, what happened? Korah and the leaders in their household were all swallowed up in an earthquake 
while their followers were destroyed by divine fire. Jude is describing Korah as an example of a rebellious or a divisive, schismatic person. And Jude is saying these false teachers are exactly what they are. Look at Jude's elaborate descriptions of who they are so that you cannot miss it, so that you will see them clearly. Look at verses 12 through 13. It says this, These are hidden reefs at your love feast as they feast with you without fear. You see, false teachers and professors are like hidden rocks that your boat hits up against, ripping out the bottom of your boat. They come to our love feast on Sunday afternoon, fellowship potlucks or new member fellowships. They eat without fear, seeking out personal gain. They are ones who always eat but never serve, never contribute. They are, it also says, shepherds feeding themselves, reminiscent of Ezekiel 34.2. These false teachers feed themselves instead of feeding the sheep while the sheep are broken, bruised, and scattered. It also says they are waterless clouds swept along by the winds in that dry and desert land instead of bringing rain, completely useless, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted. Instead of bearing fruit, they are twice dead or completely dead in the spirit, no life in them whatsoever. It says in verse 13, they are wild waves of the sea. They are unpredictable. They are not dependable. They are always flaky. They are not accountable. Casting off the foam of their own shame, they have no substance. It's yucky. It's nasty. It's unsatisfying. Jude references Isaiah 57, 20. What they call honor, God sees them as shameful. They are wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. Jude is saying these false teachers who copy the behavior of fallen angels will receive the same reserved judgment designed for those fallen angels. You see, as you can see, Jude wastes no words on them with thorough descriptions of what they are. Furthermore, Jude not only helps us discern who they are, but also tells us of their certain end. So, so point number three, we're drawing to a close. What will become of them? Verses 14 through 16. Look at those verses. It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with 10,000 of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loud mouth boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. In verse 14, Jude is again quoting from an extra-canonical source. First Enoch, which was a well-known contemporary work at the time, although not an inspired word of God. Again, the fact that Jude quoted these extra-biblical references does not necessarily imply that he saw these works as inspired word of God. It simply means that the references happen to be descriptive of the men of whom Jude wrote. The point that Jude brings out here is that false teachers are destined for judgment on that great day of Christ's return. On that day, God will put false teachers and false confessors on full display for who they truly are. Grumblers, malcontents, sinful and selfish boasters and manipulators. Perhaps some of you, upon hearing the characteristics of false Christians elaborately described in Jude, the Holy Spirit perhaps is convicting you of the ways you have been rebellious toward him in these ways. Well, exactly, that is the point and the purpose of Jude, to warn us and to exhort us of who we are and who we ought not to be. So for those of you who are discouraged, perhaps, and convicted, here's more good news for you to comfort you, to give you 
hope. Fourth and finally, surprise point. Let us remember the Lord Jesus Christ. From verse 17 that we haven't read. Look at verse 17. But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. Praise the Lord that Jude exemplifies for us that he is a slave of Jesus. And I pray that you will take the same posture toward our Lord Jesus Christ unto the end. Amen? Is this true of you as well? Do you submit under the lordship of Jesus as his servant? Because only as a servant, brothers and sisters, can we rightly see Jesus as our sovereign Lord, as our faithful master, as our victorious king. It's because of him who called us, loves us, and keeps us to the end to glory. And Jesus will keep the false teachers to the end in the coming judgment. That's how we contend for the faith. Remember him, Christ Jesus, who is our defense, who is our hope, who is our victorious king. How do we contend for the faith? When the people around you believes the opposite, when everyone around us seem faithless, how do you remain faithful? Remember who you are. Remember your purpose. Remember who you're not. Remember the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, circumstances necessitate us to contend for the faith. And Father, in the life of our young church, time has come for us to contend for the faith, to not compromise the good news of Jesus Christ. Father, through all the hardships of life, through all the hardships of not to grow weary in doing good, Father, you are calling this church to stand up and be the church that you have called us to be. Father, thank you for the promise that we are called beloved and kept by Christ to the end. And all those who are contrary, those enemies of your gospel, of Christ, are kept in judgment. We don't have to worry about them. We just need to keep looking to you and remembering you each and every single day, each and every single Sunday to worship you in spirit and in truth. Father, we look to you as the only source of our perseverance, our hope, our strength, our joy. Let us rely on you more truly, more deeply, more fully. Let us love on one another more genuinely, more sacrificially, as you have called us to do. Thank you, Father, in the end, that it is not about us, but it's all about Christ, who will hold us fast to the end. To your glory we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.